This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by John Dominic Grossman. The earthly Jesus was not just a thinker with ideas, but a rebel with a cause. He was a Jewish peasant with an attitude, and he claimed that his attitude was that of the Jewish God. But it was, he said, in his life and in ones like it that the kingdom of God was revealed, that the Jewish God of justice and righteousness was incarnated in a world of injustice and unrighteousness. The kingdom of God was never just about words and ideas, aphorisms and parables, sayings and dialogues. It was about a way of life. And that means it was about a body of flesh and blood. Justice is always about bodies and lives, not just about words and ideas. Resurrection does not mean simply that the spirit or soul of Jesus lives on in the world. And neither does it mean simply that the companions or followers of Jesus live on in the world. It must be the embodied life that remains powerfully at work in this world. A reading of scripture from Psalm 32, 31. The same night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks, Thanks God. to God. As you could tell, it was a reading from Genesis 32, not Psalm 104. Sorry about that, Jack. I forgot to change the header there. 
from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. For the Word of God in Scripture, for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us. When something goes wrong, it's human nature to look for what? Somebody to blame. I didn't tell her I was going to ask that, but she. When something goes wrong, right, it's human nature to look for someone to blame. Psychologist Elliot Cohen says that one of the most destructive human pastimes is playing the blame game. I'd ask for a show of hands if anyone to see who knows this game, but I know we probably all have to reach high, right? And he notes that the blame game consists of four irrational beliefs. One, if something has gone wrong or isn't the way it should be, then someone other than myself, obviously, must be identified and blamed for causing the situation. Secondly, this person's irresponsibility diminishes the respect he or she deserves. Thirdly, so it is permissible and only fitting to treat this person in ways he or she deserves to be treated, such as ignoring, name-calling, and in extreme cases, perhaps even physical assault. And the fourth irrational piece of the blame game is that I must not accept any significant degree of responsibility for the situation. You guys know that game? Maybe we didn't know those four rules, right? But we, we get it. We get it. And we see these things, these four pieces of this blame game happen quite routinely. If somebody's late to a family get-together, maybe a big holiday meal, right? So not just a regular gathering, but a big, you know, it's been planned, it's been on the calendar. They walk in quite late. They might be treated by the host as persona non grata for the rest of the night, maybe given the cold shoulder, given dirty looks, or maybe even reprimanded in front of everybody at the table. Maybe. Or we see this happen in traffic. If a car is going too slow or turns without a sing- signal or cuts us off, 
Is our first reaction empathy and compassion and, oh, they must have a reason for cutting me off. Or they must be in a hurry to get somewhere. Right? The better of us might react initially that way, right? But usually, right, we get a little bit upset and we blame them. We may honk the horn. We may give them a hand signal. We may... We may swear under our breath or out loud. When something goes wrong, it is human nature to find someone to blame. In our text today, Jesus goes out to a deserted place by himself. But it doesn't take long for him not to be by himself. The crowds hear about it and follow him. And at the end of the the day, suddenly the disciples realize it's late and no one has eaten for a while and we've got a huge crowd of hungry people here. Something has gone wrong in this situation. So what do we look for? Someone to blame. These people are hungry. It must be their fault. There was a Washington Post article this week with the headline, Christians are more than twice as likely to blame a person's poverty on lack of effort. Anybody see that article? Maybe it showed up in your social media feed. Did that surprise you that Christians are twice as likely as I guess anybody else or not Christian to blame a person's poverty on their own lack of effort? Maybe it didn't surprise you. But why is it that Christians, and in particular white evangelicals, according to the study, hold this view? I'm asking. (laughs) Okay. Part of that... Perhaps human nature to find someone to blame? Because their view of Christianity is rather harsh, one of punishment if you're not good. Okay, all right. That may well be part of it, absolutely. And we have, you know, pesky Bible verses, uh, such as in Thessalonians, where it says, Whoever is unwilling to work shall not eat. Sometimes you find a verse in the Bible and you're like, does that, does that have to be in there? And Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, right? So if we always have poor people with us, we shouldn't be working too hard to make, make, make that different. Jesus predicted it. And I think maybe there's some of our sort of uh, Puritan work ethic in the background too, right? That we've maybe inherited from some of our... Uh, theological forebears. I won't mention any names. But the bottom line is, if a person is poor or hungry, many Christians, not all, will say that it's that person's own fault. And so we play the blame game. Now, of course, there are occasions, right, where people have made poor decisions. Of course. But often, situations are much more complex, much more complex. And there are structural issues, broader realities, contributing to why a person in a given situation is where they are. But the pernicious part of this blame game in these four irrational beliefs we noted was that, particularly the second one, that we confuse the deed with the doer. We don't just say what you did was wrong. We now look at that person 
as less of a person. They screwed up. They're not worthy of help now as a person. They can figure it out themselves. In fact, it's better if they figure it out themselves, and so we better pull back any help so that they can learn quicker. And so if we don't respect someone, we don't often feel like helping them. We blame them, say it's their fault, and say they're not deserving of compassion or assistance. And the disciples in our text are right on cue. They say, send the crowds away. In other words, get these hungry people out of our sight so that they may go into the villages and buy some food for themselves. These people should have known what they were getting into. It's their fault they didn't think or plan ahead. They can deal with it. And so I hear echoes of, these people just need to work harder. They just need to take responsibility. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And if we help them, they'll never learn. And according to this Washington Post article, many folks continue to echo these lines today. And we hear them in our sort of political and national dialogue about how to be as a society. (coughs) Well, there was another article this week, this one in the Holland Sentinel, which noted that a significant population of Ottawa County is struggling with basic household needs. And referred to this population as ALICE, this, which is an acronym. Anybody know what ALICE stands for? Yeah. I work at United Way, so. Ah, yes. I think the United Way was it's, quoted in this article, yeah. Yeah, asset limited income constrained employed. Okay, asset limited income constrained employed. So these are people who are working, have jobs, yet limited uh, assets and limited income. In other words, even though they're working, they're on the edge of being able to pay the bills, and they're perhaps a crisis away, right, from being in major trouble. And it noted that in Ottawa County, Alice makes up what percentage of households? What's your guess? You can't answer. (laughs) 30%. Yeah, it was 28 or around 30%. That's right. High 20s, if not 30%. And that's higher than the average for the whole state of Michigan in Ottawa County. That might surprise us. Right here in Ottawa County. And in fact, if you include uh, the impoverished households, so those who maybe don't have jobs or don't quite meet that Alice status, to the Alice households, is 49%. Half. That's amazing. That's amazing. And if you add in the view held by many that poor people are to blame for their poverty, it's an even bleaker picture. Well, the disciples see a crowd of hungry people. They offer a solution. It's their fault, so send them away, and they can deal with it. It's not our problem. And you can hear the the blame game at work there. Well, what does Jesus do? In verse 14, we read that he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them. They're following him. Not only are they hungry, our text says many of them were sick uh, in need of healing. 
And Jesus has compassion on them, which is amazing if we look at how our text begins. Text uh, verse 13 says, When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Does anybody know what Jesus has just heard? What news he's just gotten? We didn't read this part, and we don't have Bibles in the pews here, so extra credit if you know this one. Jesus has just gotten the word that John the Baptist has been killed. His friend, his colleague, his fellow prophet has been executed by the state. And Jesus knows what happens to prophets and knows that he might well be next. And so he escapes by himself, retreats, right? For a time of, no doubt, grieving, a time of reconnecting to God and imagining, praying about what's next. Yet the crowds follow him. And his first response is not send them away, which would be understandable, right? Would absolutely be understandable. But his reaction, his first response is to have compassion on them. And so this context of knowing that this has just happened to John the Baptist reminds us of the crucial reality of empire and power that is in and through all the gospel narratives. In fact, it's just a reality of life in first century Palestine. And this is largely a poor nation under the thumb of Roman imperial occupation. Now a select few in Israel are benefiting from this, right? They're working with, collaborating with, cooperating with Roman officials, uh, working for, if not directly or indirectly, and they're doing okay, but that's a select few. Many, though, are poor and hungry, particularly the kind of folks Jesus knew and grew up with in the Galilee area, right? His disciples, largely fishermen. Jesus himself was an artisan, right? Working with his hands, either in stone or woodwork. And there were farmers, many living at a very subsistence level. And so, as today, in our own setting of empire, there are structural realities, broader structural realities, that have a huge impact on where someone is economically, socioeconomically. It's more complicated than just work harder or just take responsibility for your life. Sometimes those are the right words, but not always. Jesus says to the disciples, when they say send them away, he says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And the disciples, we can imagine, are like, uh, there's about 5,000 People here, Jesus, actually more than that, right? If we include everyone. (laughs) There's a ton of people here, Jesus. And they look in their little satchels and say, well, we've got one bag of Doritos, two fruit roll-ups, and five PB&Js. Right? There's not enough to go around. There's not enough to go around. The writer Parker Palmer asks whether we imagine that we live in a world of scarcity or abundance. He says, do we inhabit a universe where the basic things that people need, food and shelter, a sense of competence, being loved, where these things are ample or plentiful in nature? Or is this a universe where such goods are in short supply, available only to those who have power to beat everyone else to the store? He says, the nature of our action will be heavily conditioned by the way we answer that question. 
Do we live in a world of scarcity or abundance? The Quaker Wes Daniels notes that many of us have experienced times of scarcity in our own lives. Right? Times when money is tight, maybe it seems to evaporate as soon as we touch it, and perhaps where love and friendship seem unpredictable or untrustworthy. Where God seems silent and our prayers go unanswered. Scarcity is a feeling that you don't have enough of what you want and is often the root of anxiety and fear in our lives. But then he says that feeling of scarcity is not limited to the poor. The rich can experience scarcity sometimes even more than those who are poor. A scarcity mentality, that is. This is about a perspective we bring to the world. He says, in the scarcity model, we imagine that there isn't enough to go around. We imagine that we must be defensive about what we have. And I think empires tend to operate on a scarcity model. There isn't enough to feed everybody, and what we do have, someone else is probably trying to take from us. And so we need to invest in ways to defend what we have, to make sure no one can have what we have. And so we're going to invest in defense in military, in weapons, to make sure that what we have is protected. And when that happens, we remove money and resources from economic assistance, food and health care for those who really need it. Parker Palmer says, in a universe of scarcity, only people who know the arts of competing, even of making war, will be able to survive. But in a universe of, gen- of abundance, acts of generosity and community become not only possible, but fruitful. The disciples are operating in a scarcity mentality. We have nothing here, they say. Nothing here but these five loaves and two fish. And maybe this bag of Doritos. Right? There isn't enough. And who of us wouldn't be right there with them? Right? It's common sense, right? There isn't enough. There's a lot of people. There's not enough. But Jesus sees not what is lacking, but what is present. He says, bring them here to me. And he takes them and holds them up and blesses God for them. And then rather than making sure that he and his companions are fed, And don't go hungry. He says, give them away. Give it away. But Jesus, we might go hungry. But Jesus, what if there isn't enough to go around? But Jesus, this will never be enough. Jesus, this is insanity. What are you doing? But Jesus penetrates the illusion of scarcity and acts out of the reality of abundance. And he reorients the entire situation around compassion and gratitude. Compassion and gratitude. Two of what we might consider three components of abundance. Looking for what there is to be thankful for and what is present, and then voicing that to God and to community in a place of gratitude. And isn't that one of the most subversive things we can do in a consumer-driven society, which wants us always to say there isn't enough and we need to get more? 
So instead, look at what's there and bless God for it. And so if the first two components of abundance are compassion and gratitude, what might the third one be? Generosity? Sharing or generosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Compassion, gratitude, sharing. And so Jesus says, hand it out. And it turns out there is enough for everyone. The text says they all ate and were filled. But here's where it gets sticky, right? Our modern minds are like, well, what's actually going on here, right? Is this a miracle here? Is this something only Jesus can do? And therefore, it actually doesn't apply to us at all. Because if any one of us could take a loaf of bread and feed all of, you know, whatever, a 10-block radius from here with one loaf, then these questions would be a lot easier, right? So is this a miracle that is unrepeatable and that we could never do? And if so, what does that mean? Barbara Brown Taylor says that the problem with miracles is that they mesmerize us and cause us to want to leave everything up to God and say, well, we don't have to do anything. God is going to provide a miracle. She's not saying don't ask for miracles because of that, but she's saying that can be a a downside of always expecting a miracle. She says, miracles let us off the hook. They appeal to the part of us that's all too happy to let God feed the crowd and save the world and do it all. God can just snap her fingers and feed everyone, then what do we need to worry about it for? So is that what's happening here? Maybe. Right? Certainly. And maybe, maybe not. I think either way, a key component is that the disciples follow Jesus' cue and they participate in the sharing. They participate in the sharing. This is not a passive event. And so whether it miraculously never runs out, and that is certainly an option, and that's what the text seems to imply, or perhaps another option is that their act of sharing inspires others in the crowd, rather than saying there isn't enough, or this is only enough for for me and maybe the kid I brought with me. Maybe it inspires others to share what they have with them. And that the sharing reciprocates and builds when people see an abundant mentality at work. People's hands, instead of clenching, begin to open. But either way, Barbara Brown Brown Taylor says, it's as if God tells us, stop waiting for food to fall from the sky and share what you have. Share what you have. Stop waiting for a miracle and participate in one instead. We heard the statistics just of our county, and we know they're much bleaker if we were to look nationally and certainly across our globe of people who don't have enough. And I think we would all consider it a miracle if human beings figured out how to share the resources that this planet God has given us has. I love that line. Stop waiting for a miracle and participate in one instead. Bread, such a simple and necessary thing. Such a powerful thing. 
And the sharing of it is at the heart of what it's about in being a community of Jesus followers together. So the invitation then is to stop playing the blame game. To view ourselves and our neighbors not through the lens of our society or the lens of the economy as merely cogs in the machine of increasing the gross national product and not worth much if we're not participating adequately. But rather, the invitation is to see ourselves and everybody we meet, regardless of their financial status, as beautiful creatures made in the image of God. As people worthy of unconditional love, as people capable of great acts of compassion, and as full participants in the kingdom of God, where, yes, sometimes miracles do happen. Amen. And namaste. Oh God, we thank you for your reminder this morning to us that at your table there is enough for all. And at your table all of us are welcome. May we hear and receive that invitation and invite others to join us. In Jesus' name, amen. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.